And as they're exiting, turn to Revelation chapter 16, please. You're reading that just a little bit. At the end of this chapter is a great earthquake. But we, unless you have a news blackout in your life, you understand there was a devastating earthquake in Turkey on this past Monday. And last time I checked, the death toll is at 28,000 souls and seems to be rising rapidly. They are moving from, sadly, from the rescue efforts. It's going to become primarily retrieval uh, at this point. Uh, our church supports missionaries in Turkey, and they were here with us a couple of summer go- summers ago. You might remember them. They emailed us the next day to tell us that they're fine, but they also included this note. The family pictured above is the pastor of the church in Antakya, his wife and 10-year-old son. The building they were in collapsed during the first earthquake and all three were trapped under the rubble. After six hours, their son was rescued, but sadly, by the time they were able to rescue the husband and wife, they had already passed away. The church all over Turkey mourns their loss. Please pray for their son as he recovers physically and walks through the loss of both his parents. Just by that note, it seems to be that he was a very prominent pastor, and of course, in a Muslim nation, he may have been one of the only pastors, so they're passing that along to us. All such tragedies are obviously awful, but uh, we, we tend to do this when they're tragedies. We put them in historical perspective, and this is landing maybe somewhere about the 30th most deadly earthquake in, in history. And uh, the second deadliest earthquake ever was the one in Haiti in 2010 with an estimated about 300,000 deaths. That was only a magnitude 7.0 versus 7.8, the one in Turkey. And the difference means that the one in Turkey was almost 10 times stronger than the one in Haiti. But of course, because of the poverty, because of all the the buildings and homes that are poorly constructed, there was a, a much greater death rate there. I was part of the team, our first team from Grace Church. It went to Haiti about 11 months after that earthquake, saw a lot of the devastation still. And you might remember uh, Kinza and Chloe Eisenman, their mother died in that earthquake. Um, the third and fourth deadliest earthquakes ever were just 50 miles south of the one that happened this past week uh, in the years 115 and 525. Uh, very deadly earthquakes. Those happen to be the same location that the Bible calls Antioch. And sometimes online, they'll actually call them from Antioch. That's where uh, believers were first called, what? Christians at Antioch. That was the famous church, church planting church in the New Testament. There, that They sent Paul off on all of his missionary and church planting uh, endeavors. Uh, and this particular earthquake, this particular area rather, gets so many earthquakes because it sits uh, exactly, right right there is the Antioch area, uh, area uh, right at the, the intersection of three tectonic plates. So it's just, it's just a disaster literally waiting to happen. But notice uh, the fault line as it goes south of Turkey, it goes, uh, let me move, move back there, it goes right through the Jordan River, right down the Jordan River. So a highly uh, dangerous area in terms of earthquakes which bears much on our text this morning, as you'll see. But experts weigh in on this fault, and they said this. Israel is situated along the Dead Sea Transform, which is tectonically active and has generated many large earthquakes, including a magnitude 7.2 in 95. 
Historical records indicate that almost every city in Israel was damaged in the last two millennia by large earthquakes. Now, God doesn't need tectonic plates in a given area to cause an earthquake, right? He can do whatever he wants. Nevertheless, he created this land with all of these tectonic plates, with disasters literally waiting to happen. And the world's deadliest earthquake, earthquake has not happened yet, but it is prophesied for us in Revelation 16, verse 18. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. That's telling us it will be the greatest earthquake ever. Tragedies like the earthquake in Turkey occur due, due to the impact of our sin upon the fallen world. It's just another one of those damaging impacts. Now, God is always sovereign, but we can't point to tragedies like this and say, well, I know why this happened because, you know, because they're Muslim or they're, the sin was happening there, and so, so God caused that to happen. We, we never know the answer, almost never know uh, the answer to those things. But we can say that about the earthquake in this chapter. So let me finish, uh, let me uh, start by reading the rest of the chapter here. Fill that in, starting at verse 1. Then I heard, heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. And it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth, mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bull into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. 
and every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Before we dig any further into the the details of this disaster, I want to make sure that we're capturing the big idea of this chapter. This book, of course, was written to Christians and for Christians. For that reason, in my mind, verse 15 stands out probably as its main theme. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. My This particular Bible is not a red-letter Bible. If you have a red-letter Bible, those words are in red because regardless of the color, these are clearly the words of Jesus. And his words are meant to be a a warning, but also an encouragement to stay awake. Remember what Jesus said to the church in Laodicea? I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, White clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. Laodicea was one of the uh, few very unhealthy churches with many false believers in that. Uh, So this chapter about the end of human history, and Jesus has been clear, only those who endure to the end will be saved. Therefore, stay awake. And we see this all throughout the Gospels, by the way. If you, if you just read through the Gospels, I read through Matthew in the last uh, couple of weeks, again recently, and parable after parable after parable about his second coming. Be prepared. Have your oil ready. Uh, be a good steward while, while the master is away. Over and over again. I'll give you from Matthew 7. On that day, many will say to me, what? Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? I've not, done the, I've not done that. And do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them. So in other words, they, they look like followers. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, all of these things from, from the Gospels, well, the whole Bible really, but Gospels all the way through the end of Revelation are a call to endurance. And if you're here a couple weeks ago, we learned that the word endurance means to abide under, to abide under. That's how you endure. And what are you abiding under? Rather, who are you abiding under? You are abiding under the Lord Jesus Christ. So to endure, to stay awake, means to continue to abide in Jesus. And the truths of this chapter, all the points I'm about to enter into now, are meant to keep us awake and to remain vigilant. So keep that in mind as we work through. Number one, this is a great event with great consequences. Uh, The Greek word for great appears 11 times in this chapter. Now, it may not be translated great every time in your Bibles, uh, but here's the quick list. Uh, There is a great voice. There is a great heat. There is the great river, uh, the great day of God the Almighty, another great voice, a great earthquake, a uh, great earthquake, great city, Babylon the great, great hailstones, and a plague that was great. So just, in a, just scattered all throughout this chapter, just from that one word, we're meant to get the clear picture of a great event with great consequences. This is the end of the world. And prior to this, the earth will have experienced seven seals and the seven trumpets and now the seven bulls. 
Now, if you remember, my interpretation is that, that all those three are essentially the same, the, the seals and the trumpets and the bulls. I believe they're, they're all describing the same event, but, but the, the, the drama, the intensity, the, the greatness just ramps up as you go. Uh, because you get to the end of chapter 6, and I'm convinced there is uh, the return of Jesus. Here you get to the end of chapter 16, and it's clearly the return of Jesus. So I believe they're sort of recapitulating or repeating themselves, but it just gets worse and worse. You get a fourth of mankind killed, and then you get a third of mankind killed. And especially if you look at the trumpets and the bulls side by side, the first four are almost absolutely identical. But whether you agree with me or not, it's clear this is the end. Because it actually says it is done. It is done. It's the end of the world. There's every imaginable type of plague and suffering happening here. We're we're supposed to get the idea that there is no, if you don't know Jesus, there is absolutely no way to escape the wrath that's coming upon them. Look at verse 10 again. The fifth angel, so we're almost all the way through, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for the pain and sores. They say, did the pain and sores come in in the fifth bowl? No. The pain and sores came in the first bowl, which uh, in terms of time may have been at least two years in distance, right? Because this is describing probably last three and a half years of the tribulation, last three and a half years of humankind. So the pain and the sores came in the first bowl. Here they're still agonizing over them in the fifth bowl, but they had just experienced the fourth bowl, which is scorching heat. So not only are these plagues in and of themselves unbearable, they are cumulative, right? They just keep experiencing all the plagues that came before, and they continue to feel those things. One plague just adds to the other. And all this is described in such a way that, that you and I are supposed to feel the greatness of it, the, the heaviness of it, that this is a great event or events with great consequences, worldwide devastation. Thankfully, this is also true, that believers are shielded from the wrath of God this entire time. Verse 2 is very clear about exactly who will be affected by these plagues. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. We've seen the mark of the beast in prior chapters. And this is exactly, by the way, what was happening in the ten plagues of Egypt. And I've shown you before that at least six or maybe seven of the plagues in Egypt also appear here in the book of Revelation. And what happened there? Where the plagues, they were poured out in all of Egypt, but the entire time the Israelites were protected from all those plagues, right? Now, you might be thinking, well, did God do that because... I know the Israelites lived in the land of Goshen. That, that was far away because the, the Egyptians could not tolerate being around the Egyptians. Uh, did I say that right? The Israelites could not tolerate being around the Egyptians. So they lived in the land of Goshen. So maybe God just poured out his plagues where the Egyptians were but did not in the land of Goshen, which is partly true, very much. But when you get to the 10th plague, that theory just falls apart, that that's how God did it because uh, the, the, the plague of the, of the firstborn, And in that case, the Israelites placed the blood of a spotless lamb. Mm, Okay, now we know, right? They didn't fully know, but we see blood of the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. That's exactly what that's intending. On the doorpost of the destroying angel would, what do we call that celebration? Pass over them. 
That's where Passover comes from, that the destroying angel would pass over them. They'd be protected. God's wrath descended on all of Egypt, but within those locations, God passed over those who had the blood of a spotless lamb protecting them. And this is exactly how it happened for, will, will happen for believers in the last days. First of all, we know that no believer will have the mark of the beast because they would not be believers if that was the case. And second, all believers will be marked with the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, some Christians think that this is why all this wrath that's, that's being poured out in the last three and a half years, that's why clearly Christians, the church, has to be raptured away before the tribulation happens because Christians can't experience the wrath of God. Now, that's true. Christians can't experience the wrath of God. But will there be Christians experiencing, you know, will there, will there be Christians, I should say, in the world while these things are happening? Absolutely. This will be a time, probably the greatest revival in human history will happen during this time. Millions, hundreds of millions, even maybe billions of people will be converted during these last three and a half years. So we see that, chapter 7, all the tribe, people, language, and nations, all those people gathered around the throne of God in worshiping. So these believers will live through the days of the outpouring of God's wrath, but will be constantly, supernaturally protected from the wrath, just as he did in Egypt. It's not hard for him. By the way, this is the way God operates in all of our lives, that he is, you know, we live in the world, but he's constantly protecting us from, from all sorts of things, right? Bullets and, and viruses and financial ruin and, and devastating sin and consequences of sin. He protects us all the time. But sometimes he allows those things to happen. But even when he does, in no case can a true believer, believer ever face the wrath of God. It's impossible. We are sealed for the day of redemption. All this is leading to our final reunion because we are his. We belong to him. We are marked with his seal and eternity will be in his presence. The very thing, by the way, the world does not want. That's the whole problem here. The world and some of them, they don't want God. They don't want his presence. They are his sworn enemies. But you and I, want to be in the presence of God, right? Do you want to be in God's presence? Now, when, when I say that, I think a lot of us think, well, of course, for all eternity, I want to be in God's presence, and, and that will be so much more glorious than it is now. But what I really meant to say is, do you want to be in God's presence right now? Let's not just think about the, the, the glory of eternity. This week, do, do you think in those terms? This week, I want to be in God's presence. This week, I, I must, I need to be in God's presence. Now, do you see that, that sort of what we call longing is a little different than spiritual habits and disciplines? Now, I'm all about spiritual habits and disciplines, right? Bible, I got my Bible reading uh, list right in the back of my Bible here. I memorize uh, scripture and, and, you know, those are habits that, that, that we should have, and if you don't have them, I encourage you to develop those habits. But, but a habit can only take you so far. In the last year, I, I started, a, I think it's a good habit. Before I take a single sip of coffee every morning, I drink 16 ounces of water. Now, I got to tell you, I don't long to drink 16 ounces of water. I wake up, I'm not thirsty. 
It's hard to force down 16 ounces of water very first thing in the morning. But, but I, I'm sort of religious about it because I know it's a good thing and I, I want to get it done. And I know if I don't do that, I just won't do it. It's a habit, but I'm not longing to do that. So, but there, there are habits where we never long, but a spiritual discipline should be something that, that we long to do at times. And, and by the way, that's, it's just a way to, if you don't long, just wake up and, and whenever it is you're opening God's word and say, Father, give me a, a longing. Thank you that I have time. Thank you for the discipline of opening your word, but, but give me a longing. Open the eyes of my heart so I may see the wonders in your law, in your word. So both habits and longing are necessary. Number three, Satan has a temporary kingdom and a temporary throne. Verse 10 again. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Now, already Satan has a kingdom. This world is his kingdom, but in the last days he will have a throne, but it's only going to last a little while. It's temporary, exactly three and a half years to be exact. And all this time, now and especially then, Satan wants people to worship him, and they will worship him. How do we know that? It tells us. It tells us he's going to make them worship him. He's going to force them to have the mark of the beast because they can't buy or sell. They they realize if we don't do this, it's the end of life. It's going to be absolutely controlled, absolute tyranny, worse than we've ever seen or ever will see. So he's going to make them worship him, but I'm telling you, there are going to be hordes of people who will want to worship Jesus, who, uh, to, to worship Satan, who long to worship Satan. We saw this this past week with the Grammys. If you, anybody saw that clip, I'm not going to show the clip, but I will uh, sort of describe it. And the guy who, had, who played Satan was this guy, Sam Smith, and he tweeted out, I think it was the day before, he says, this is going to be special Satan emoji um, after it. Uh, which is bad enough, but here is how CBS replied to that tweet. You can say that again. We are ready to worship. Now, some people would say, CBS did us a favor here because they're exposing themselves, right? They're saying, this is what we're about. We're not trying to hide anything. This is, we agree. Now, do I believe that everybody that works for CBS was, was, uh, was longing to worship Satan on that night? Probably not, but, but whoever's in control of, of tweeting out, right, has got things twisted, and that's what they did. The Satan figure and all these demons around him in this video were worshiping Satan. It was absolutely blatant, and such samples will continue, examples will continue to multiply as the day of the Lord draws near, and you know this to be true, but I think worse than this, we Christians see this coming a mile away. It's just so obvious and so blatant. That's why it, it's sort of a good thing because we know which side you're on, I think far worse than that are the subtle deceptions and temptations of the enemy, the things we don't know, the things we don't see, the things that that we actually even have, to use the word habits again, we have certain even habits in our life that if we're honest, if we see it for what it is, is part of Satan deceiving us, part of him taking our hearts and leading us astray, far more dangerous than anything as blatant as that. It never stops. Therefore, stay awake, Christian. Fourth, God will be worshipped as he executes justice. We're speaking of worship in a disgusting way, worshipping Satan. 
But here in the hit, there's a hymn of worship tucked right in the middle of this chapter on God's wrath. Verse 5. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Why would there be a hymn of praise right in the middle of this chapter on God's wrath? It may seem strange to us to, to have it placed here. And, and if it re- seems really odd to you, if this is the sort of thing that you're not used to seeing, it's possible, it's possible that you have missed reading large swaths of the Bible because it's all over the Bible. The prophets talk about this thing all the time, very common, especially in the Psalms. Repeatedly, God is glorified for these very traits, for his holiness, yes, but also for his justice upon his enemies because all of that is part of God's essential character. He is holy and he is just, therefore he must mete out his divine justice, his holy justice. And to do otherwise, we would be asking for a God who is not holy and who is not just. Something entirely different that would demonstrate a a flaw in his character if there was such a God. So it's okay in one sense to, to have a little bit of angst when you see this rejoicing in the, in the middle of his wrath, I, I get that. I get that. We, we struggle with his justice and wrath mixed together. We, but, but sometimes we do so, and this is what I don't want us to miss, because we fail to grasp the utter sinfulness of sin. We fail to grasp the utter sinfulness of sin. Now, we grasp other people's sin pretty easily, right? I can point a picture at CBS all day long. We fail to grasp, usually, our own sin. That's our problem. Ever since Adam and Eve's rebellion, mankind has been going to war against God. And when I say we here, uh, in the next minute here, I'm referring to the world, right? I realize Christians, yes, we struggle with sin, but we're born again. We're, we're, our, we, we're seated in the heavens already, right? So, so we're struggling with sin, but, but we're not at war with God, okay? So I'm talking about the world of unbelievers. Man has gone to war against God. Uh, and, but, but we do so, and this is important, people war against God with all the, using all the resources that God has given them, okay? All the resources that men and women use to fight against God were given to them by God, their creator. We fight against God w- with our voices, the world does. They blaspheme God and speak against him and they, they tell one another that it doesn't even exist or it, it doesn't matter and they do so using the vocal cords that their creator gave them. The world goes to war against God with, with their bodies whom he fashioned in the womb to do unimaginable disgusting things, the very opposite of what he commands. The world constantly goes to war with their minds and and their reasoning and their creativity and they constantly create new ways to sin as if there weren't enough. The world goes to war against God with with his money and his resources that that he has given to them, spending on unimaginable evil. Men and women use the very breath of God to war against him at every turn. 
And yes, when that happens, it causes incalculable evil and consequences against other people. But we need to see the utter sinfulness of sin is fundamentally an offense against God himself. We are taking his gifts and using them as weapons to war against him. That's what the world does. We take his gifts and use them as weapons against him. So yes, as we read this chapter, we are meant to see, we are meant to feel the greatness of this, but we're also meant to see this complete war against God and this utter offense against God. We are meant to also see God in his full holiness, in his full justice. We are meant to worship him for that same justice, right? That's why this is here. It's an example for us, laid down, so we see the throne of God worshiping God for his justice. Don't ever apologize for this aspect of God's character. Don't, don't do it. It seems that, that, and I mentioned sort of the angst that we feel, and that's understandable, but some Christians take it further, and they almost seem to be embarrassed by this aspect of God. As if, you know, uh, God is sort of like a crazy uncle. You know, you bring him out uh, on holidays, and, and he's nice, he's tolerable, you know, he's good in conversation, uh, but the rest of, of the area, he's put away in the back of the closet, right? We bring God a, oh, here's God, he, he loves you, he died for you, but, but they're not going to talk about his wrath. I mean, literally, some people never, ever would talk about it. You can't divide God that way. All, uh, all of heaven will worship Jesus for carrying out his holy justice. And if you're inclined to say, well, what I'm seeing here, it just doesn't seem fair to me, this, this eternal condemnation. I mean, uh, where does it end? But if you're inclined to say, this isn't fair, then you also have to look at the cross of Jesus to say, that wasn't fair. Because the greatest injustice in human history is when they killed Jesus on a cross. That's it. That's number one. So, so you either have the cross of Jesus and his wrath or, or you lose all of it. His death purchased our salvation and we worship him for his sacrifice on the cross but also for his justice against his enemies which we see uh, how, how persistent his enemies are. Do you know that the trees of the forest Sing for joy. This is First Chronicles. The trees of the forest sing for joy because he comes to judge the world. The trees of the all of creation is singing and waiting his justice. Now, we see in Romans chapter 8 that all of creation is groaning in eager expectation for, for the sons of God to be revealed, for, for Jesus to come, right? Because all of creation is affected by sin, so therefore creation is groaning for that, but also groaning for him to come to judge the world. He will rejoice in his justice. Therefore, how much more should we, his creatures, also rejoice? Finally, some will refuse to repent until literally the last day. Let's take a look, another look at the hardness of these hearts. It just progresses throughout Verse 9, they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Verse 11, people cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. And then all the way down to the end, they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. We see the same posture of rebellion, lack of repentance back in chapter 9. Now, it doesn't mean that no one repents, right? Because we've already established 
most likely the greatest revival in human history, hundreds of millions, perhaps into the billions, the number of new converts during the tribulation. But placed here in the last days, it's intended to show that even until literally the bitter end, some will refuse to repent. They'll look at God and say, I know you did this. I know this is you, but I will not bow my knee to you. But while we see the wrath of God play out in this chapter and in this book, we must not forget that the major purpose of all of it, of the seals and the trumpets and, and the bowls, is this very reason, to cause people to repent. That's what he wants, do, do you see? Remember, this all playing out in the last half of the tribulation, all, which is when all the conversions are happening. So, so vast numbers are being converted. So his wrath, as awful as it is, is still a form of patience and mercy. You must see that. To be more clear, let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as comes, some count slowness. And there he's supposed to say, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon. And we faced this before, we say, it doesn't feel like soon. There's part of the answer, right? He's not slow, as we think of slowness and soonness. But what is he? He's patient toward you. Thank God, thank him, not wishing that any perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Greek word for patience, and I talked about this several months ago, the word means a, a distant wrath or a delayed wrath. Do you see? So to be, for God to be patient is to say, I've got wrath, and if you don't bow down to me and repent, it's coming, but I've pushed it off, and he keeps pushing it. So the slowness that feels like slowness to us, that's, that's mercy. Every bit of it is pure mercy with the purpose of drawing more people to himself. So even at this final devastating earthquake, the greatest in all of human history, still, even then, some will repent. We saw this um, a couple of chapters ago, 11. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. That is them repenting at the very, very end. Finally, I want you to take one last look at the hymn of worship Specifically, verse 5, we read there. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. Now, as you read that, what, what feels like it's missing there? Anything? Who is and who was and who is to come. Chapter 1, it's, it's, it's there at least twice. That's who God is, who was and who is and who is to come. Why is it not here? Because he's there. He's come. There is no more is to come. He has come. It is done. He's no longer identified who is to come because he is here. This is his second coming. And he's coming to finish bringing judgment on those who persistently war against him, sadly, but also to raise us from the dead so we will be in his presence forever and ever. Amen. I'd like us, before I pray, to, to stand. Let's read a scripture together and then sing a verse together as a response to this. Let's read Jesus' words together. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. 
When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Father, we all agree together that you are great. There is nothing greater than you. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son to be a substitute for our sin as we warred against you, even while we were enemies, even while we were dead. He did this for us. Lord, help us to see your greatness, and long for more of your presence. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.